When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins, and I'm sat here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, not in the, Barney. Not in the cupboards, but in the other cupboards. In, in, in a different Rocks Back Pages cupboard. Yeah, yeah. the usual They're, cupboard. We can't sit, be there because... They're drilling. They're drilling what a outside. Joy. You probably hear it from here anyway, but... Yeah, we've, and you're... We've decamped or recamped or whatever. <laughs> Camped. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get camp, some camp. ambient external noise anyway. After last week's stellar guest deal tenant, RBP's core session men returned to discuss everything that's new on Rock's Back Pages this week, including an audio interview with cult figure Buzzy Linhart and library pieces about Paul McCartney, John Cooper Clark, and Loudon Wainwright and Son. But first, we're going to talk about the week's free offerings, starting with a band many would consider to be the funkiest four-piece ever to come out of America. Who am I talking about, Mark? You're talking about the Meters. The Mighty Meters. The Mighty Meters. Barney, when did you first become aware of the Meters? I think the honest truth is I only really began to understand what the Meters were all about when they supported the Stones at Earl's Court. Right. And I saw two of those shows in the summer of 76. Yeah. And I'd heard of them, but I don't really know what their place was in the story of American R&B and funk and New Orleans. Um, So it was only really subsequent to that that I understood that they were the kind of engine room behind kind of Alan Toussaint's sound, particularly in in New Orleans. I mean, I'd I'd been becoming increasingly aware of them over about 73, 74, 75. I became aware of these names on the back of Dr John album covers, specifically Right Place, Wrong Time. And desertively Bonnaroo, which is essentially. So you just see the same names. I see the, the same I see, names. I see, the, I see yeah. the same names. Those names are pretty fabulous. Well, the, 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 absolutely, you know, Boo, Modali, the great. It must be the greatest it's name. Not ever. Be the greatest name. Uh, and um, I absolutely love it. Then I spent a lot of time hanging around at my friend Jamie, his girlfriend Jane's place. Jamie went as drummer, went on to produce my band's first yeah. album. This would be summer '75. Yeah, and he was playing this album over and over again, called Rejuvenation. Yeah. And it just knocked me flat. Yeah. So the following September, beginning the term, with my fresh new student grant... Yes, we had student grants in those days. Happy young, days. Young people. I went to Sarah's on school. We lament that very much. <laughs> we, I, I went to this record shop in West Hampstead, where I was living at the time, and I bought Rejuvenation, I bought Southern Nights Ball and Toussaint, I bought Robert Palmer's... Sneakers and Sally Through the Alley, which has basically got the meters yep. playing on it. And I also got Lee Dorse's 1970 album, Yes We Can, yep. which again has got the meters yeah, on it. Yeah, so I bought yeah, four yeah, yeah. albums, which were either the meters or meters associated. Oh, and I also bought Grove Washington Jr.'s Mr. Magic, which does rather let the side Less down. Less said about it, <laughs> It's actually it's not, it's bad, not bad. It's not bad, bad record. But, but, you Obvious know, records. 
And so I just completely fell in love with music. I started hearing, listening back to their earlier stuff, the sophisticated structure. The Josie material. Absolutely. Which is quite different. I mean, they've still got those, some of the same sort of grooves. But yeah, lots of second line kind yeah. of rhythms. But it's a, it's a different sort of like band sound. I mean, the Rejuvenation is much more, in a sense, a mainstream funk album. Yeah, definitely. But I, just, just, I still love it to this day. It's oh, absolutely one of my favourite records. And then, like you, I, I actually went to see the Stones in 76, not to see the Stones, so I'd already fed up with by then, but to see the meters. And it was such a music snob. I was, I'm totally. And, did you and, leave before the Stones? So that's no, the I question. Didn't. Ah, well, well, exactly. Well, there you go. Yeah, was, there, like, see. But, I mean, see? It, it was, this is Earl's Court, <laughs> and the acoustics were terrible. The meters played on a very small stage in yeah. front of the Stones mm, stage. I remember that well. With the, the house lights up and a yeah. sort of pseudo carnival. Really going, weird. Going and on. Nobody paying any attention. No one. No. Except for, well. For you. You. And you. Yeah. I guess. And they, they really didn't, they didn't last long after that. They're far and above used the, uh, the current album when. That was quite successful, though. <laughs> as a result of the Stones thing, I think it was one I of them. Oh, commercially, I think it was one of their more successful. In fact, they never had any great no, success. No, no, they they really. had to cult acclaim yeah. much more. They're, I mean, Sissy Strutt was a top 30 hit in yeah. America, but that was it in yeah. terms of hits. And that was way back in 69. 69. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, they were important really for as much as a, as a session band, as a studio band for the likes of Dr. John and countless other New Orleans mm. R&B girls. Going back to is 65. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ab- absolutely. About I don't know, three, four years ago, I saw that Ziggy Modelist was playing in the 100 Club in London, and I, I went along not expecting a whole lot. I mean, he is one of the great drummers in African American oh, yeah. music, without a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, yes, half the audience were people like me with grey hair and sort of middle aged spread and so on and so forth. But interestingly, because the meters have some cachet amongst young people. Yeah. The, Hi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the likes of Mr. Mirison Bowie I've over there. I've forgotten Jasper was young yeah, for a moment there. Because well, he, he acts older than us. Anyway. I think the uh, word you're looking for is more mature. That doesn't necessarily mean older. There you go. But, but anyway, what was great was there was a substantial young audience for this show at Hanford Club. And you could see the band. I mean, they were kind of a young New Orleans R&B band with the elderly Ziggy yeah. behind the drums. And you could see them light up because it's kind of pretty girls were dancing to them. And yeah. they really raised their game. Yeah. And it was, it was really good. But Mode least in the room, 100 Club, was he mic'd up? I'm not even sure he's mic'd up. Wow. He's that loud a drummer, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he was just jaw-dropping. Wow. Yeah, so that was a real pleasure. I wish I'd seen that. Yeah. That is fantastic. The reason we're talking about the Mighty Meters is because... Cherry Red of all labels, you know, Cherry Red, you would sort of associate with sort of rather fey indie bands from the <laughs> 80s. But they do quite interesting reissued stuff now. So they, they have packaged together every Meters album. So the, I think the three albums they did yeah, for yeah. Josie and then the what, three albums they did for Warners. Yeah. I mean, there's at least six albums there. So it is the whole Meters story. And we put together a playlist on Spotify that hopefully will kind of illustrate just how extraordinary the meters were. I mean, you know, they sort of combined elements of Booker T and the MGs with with sort of elements of James Brown, the famous flames, didn't they? But but they gave it, and it sounds like such a cliche to say it, such a specifically New Orleans flavour. Can you just talk a little bit about about that and how that sound, you know, came about. What they what, what they put in it and what they left out. It's a lot to do with the sort of second line yes. rhythms, the, uh, the brass bands, even though yeah. they're obviously not a brass-based no. or horn-based funk band, they the, still I mean, use those kind of melodic and rhythmic ideas particularly. I, I think some true. I think your comparison to Booker T and the MGs is, is appropriate in that they had the same basic lineup of Hammond, guitar, bass and drums. And were at the heart uh, of the sessions uh, that Alan uh, Toussaint uh, was absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Well, and what they had was Zigaboo Modeliste, actually, yes. to put it bluntly, that he was a uniquely New Orleans-style drummer and was probably the best. I mean, when you think about it, Earl Palmer was the original New Orleans drummer, correct? Correct. He goes to Los Angeles in the mid early yes. 60s leaving a, basically a vacant, a, drum, a vacant drum seat for mm. whoever's good enough, and it's Zigaboo Modelist yeah. who is good enough. And he has a particular, as you say, second-line style, not much, very little ride cymbal, not much that. It's so much based around the snare drum and the kick yeah. drum. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a sort of marching 
it, 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 it certainly involves it's from Street Parade. Exactly. Uh, and so that, that's the core of the sound. Minimalist bass playing, close almost to like reggae bass playing. Yes. Funk bass playing. And wonderful clipped guitar, which is, relates to James Brown, as you saying. So there's an element of Jimmy Nolan in there, but not so kind of rapid-fire repetitive. Do you have an authoritative pronunciation of the guitarist's name? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Give it a Neo, Leo... Nocentelli. 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 Don't know whether it's a, uh, a... I guess it sounds... I mean, it sounds Italian. Yeah, it's an Italian, Italian so name. Italian. How do you spell it? Nocentelli. I guess. And, of course, uh, uh, there's Art Neville. Yeah, Art Neville being... Yeah, Nocentelli. Um, Nocentelli. Nocentelli. Art Neville being one of the, the three, four Neville brothers. Four Neville, four Neville brothers, brothers, I think. Yeah. After when the Meters Fells pieces, the Neville brothers sort of got back together and became what eventually was the Neville brothers. Mm but without the rhythm section. And, you know, I mean, it's sad, you know, I, I really don't believe in bands reuniting. I hate this sort of thing. But it, it's kind of sad that the Meters never did anything in the last 30 years because Art died, what, a couple of years back, I Yeah, think? they did reunite. They, did, I mean, they the, did tour a bit yeah, and they, they played. They did play. Right. They were, I mean, I think there were fallings out, yes. you, as ever, to do with, like, money and stuff. Mm. I mean, Zygmunt at least wanted a... Fell out with the others right. over, over some money thing, yeah. but they did come. I mean, the, the last of the three pieces we're featuring about the meters is by our friend Joel Selvin in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and he's basically hanging out backstage with them at the Fillmore when they're playing. Yeah, November twenty oh five. They they played shows then. They had already played some jazz festivals that year, mm-hmm. so they they did the original quartet did yeah, come right. back together, and they had a couple of other sort of they had. The Funky Meters, which was a couple of them, and they had the, the Meter Men, which was one of the guys the me- with yeah. the fish or something. It's the usual but they they didn't play over yeah. the last sort of 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was sort of inconsistent, and yeah. the Neville Brothers obviously were full steam ahead. Just going back to, to you know what your discussion of the unique sound of mm-hmm. the Meters, one of the other pieces that we're featuring is by the great Don Snow, and the excellent Don Snow, mm-hmm. who's written such, such great stuff on yeah. black American music of all descriptions. And and he kind of, he talks to George Porter, the bass player. Right. And he maybe gets to the heart of this. He, he, he says that we used to play all over the backbeat. And I'm guessing this goes back to like 65 when they were playing on Lee Dorsey sessions, yeah. Betty yeah. Harris yeah. sessions. You think about something mm. like Trouble With My Lover by Betty Harris. It's such a unique soul sound. Mm-hmm. And he's, so Porter says, we used to play all over the backbeat, but Toussaint pulled me and Leo's coat to hit that note and let it come through. The space started really happening when we started breathing and letting the snare drum pop out. Yeah. You know, so that's quite interesting. So, I I mean, I think when you listen to those great meters sides, like Sissy Strap, like Look at Pie Pie and so forth, it's as important what you're not hearing as what you are hearing. You're hearing a lot of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sissy Strap. There's so much space in there, isn't there? yeah. I think that might be a kind of key. And I think they also talk in this interview about how a lot of their tracks are driven by the bass playing the melody line, yeah, which yeah. is very different yeah. from Stacks or Motown yeah, or absolutely. anything else. I mean, you know, and they did evolve, as I say, into the rejuvenation version of meters. But it's still got the same elements, it's still got the same space. It's the same got feel. Tracks I think. like Just Kiss My Baby, which are oh. just oh. astonishing. I mean, Hey Pocky Way. I mean, it's just like yeah. three or four. Just Kiss My Baby is one of my favourite tracks of all time. It's, it's just astonishing. When we did my oh, like, 100 Greatest Funk Tracks of yeah. all time, which is nearly 20 years ago yeah. on Rock's Back Pages, it's still there somewhere. I think Just Kiss My Baby, we kind of end up voting it like literally numbers two or three. Something like that. Yeah, something Behind like, like In Time by Sign the Family yeah. Stone and the James Brown. But it was right up there. Or you know. and, it, and yet it's so simple. Just yeah, it's so sparse. Baby. It's the so sparseness that gets, that gets it so funky, yeah. I think. The bass line is just, it's just like, it just goes over these very simple ground notes. Yeah. And Modalist is just kind of playing around those the, yeah, that foundation. So One thing I didn't brilliant. know that I learned from the Snowden piece was that apparently Zig wasn't the original drummer. No, correct. The other drummer <laughs> developed some illness and went into the hospital. Zig came to sit in with us for two weeks, and when the other drummer came back and heard Zig play, he said, Oh man, I can't ask for that job back. He voluntarily quit, and Zig kept the job. <laughs> yeah, you still you with know this when you beat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like a king. Yeah. Because I just kissed my baby. Just a fantastic band, and they had a kind of extended influence. I mean, aside from the stuff they played on, I believe they play on 
that first LaBelle album that yep. was done with... They're on Lady Mar- Marmalade, absolutely. for a start. Yep. They also hugely influenced on bands like Little Feet, who we're huge oh, yeah. fans of. Completely. Uh, Completely. You, know, you know, hoovering up that sort of groove. And when Lowell replaced, essentially, the bass player and brought in percussionists and Little Feet, they become a distinctly New Orleans punk band in, yeah. in many, mm. many respects. Yeah, 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 yeah. The first of the three pieces is by our friend Vivian Goldman. Oh. And this interview is done, I'm guessing, either just before, probably just before the Stones shows at the Oscar, yeah, yeah. Oscar. So it's it's basically Art Neville in a hotel room, probably yeah, yeah. like the Montcalm or something. And, <laughs> and, and she says she's sitting there with Cliff White... From the enemy, she's interviewing art for sounds, and there's you know someone from the record company, and so forth. Yeah, she says Cliff White from A N Other Music Weekly. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's, it's 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 Vivian like riffing in a wonderfully kind of yeah. soulful way. It's a funny encounter. And art novel is pretty forthcoming. Yeah, I think yeah. they sort of expect him to be a bit more guarded, and he's actually quite honest about you know saying kind of two saints took a little more credit. For the meters sound than perhaps he deserved to. Yes, but then again, you've also mentioned the, the George Porter quote, which actually points to Alan Toussaint having. So the truth is probably somewhere sure. in the middle I of imagine. that. Yes, you know. and the fact that Toussaint worked with them over so many years, evolving his own sound. Yeah, right. It, it's always going to be a give and take in that yeah. kind of working relationship. And he will have I, taken as much as he will have given, yeah. and I think that's how yeah. that developed alongside. But I mean, each other. the one thing Toussaint has is a broad musical vision, which I doubt individual members of the meters necessarily had. That's possibly true. You know, I think so. And he's he's proved that over and over again in all kinds Mm. of different contexts. Mm. At the very end of the interview, Vivian writes, Art asked me, aren't you going to ask me what I think of the Stones? (laughs) 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 So so Vivian goes, okay, what do you think? And and he he just kind of says what you'd expect, given that they're touring the world (laughs) with the Stones. They're a dynamite group. They hang out with us, come into the dressing room. We jammed on stage with them and Eric Clapton a couple of nights back. They're nice people. Of course. Yeah, 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 of course he says that. And actually, you know what? They probably they were. Probably were. They were in awe of and the I think, I think Zig went on to tour with Keith, Keith Richards. Richards. He yeah, was well, in the expansive... So well, he was, was. Sorry, he was in the New Barbarians right, right. with Ron Wood. Oh, right. He was that drummer. Um, I mean, the thing is, you know, you've got to give Stones credit to that they always were in the business of promoting black music on their tour. Absolutely. Going and right that was sincere. To, going right back to 69, you know, with Ike and Tina Turner yeah. and B.B. King and so on. So of course. So, you know, the, 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 that's what they did. Yeah. Um, and you know, you could, a lot of people say yes, but they were ripping off black music. Well, well that's a given. That's a given. It doesn't mean yeah. that they weren't you know, helpful to some of these musicians. And they sort of did the right thing in that instance of using the platform that they then had, yeah, sure, through the various advantages they had to then also lift other people. Well, I'm um, didn't Stevie Wonder support on the where they took him from? Yeah. And he, that was at the beginning of him yeah. becoming a massive star. Yeah, that Prince was, supported the Stones as well. I, don't, I can't remember how many dates that was, yeah. but it would have been 80, maybe two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Controversy around them. Right. Prince was a support act yeah. in some of the US dates. No, it's, it's, you know, good for them. Yeah. I'm not going to bitch about that. No, exactly. So, so that's the meters. And actually, at some point in the future, we will be adding Cliff White's audio interview yes. with... Oh, oh, really? Which is probably from this yes. very hotel room probably. with Vivian sitting in the you background. May, you may hear Vivian, well, Vivian. in the background. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I look forward to that. Yeah. yeah. Also free on the Rockback Pages homepage this week are three pieces by the excellent Francis Morgan. This is an, a very different sort of area of music. So we're going from New Orleans to the mid-noughties. Francis wrote a number of pieces for Plan B magazine, which was Everett True's follow-up publication to Careless Talk Costs Lives. And She um, was the co-editor with Everett. She was the co-editor yeah. of Plan B. We're hoping to get much more of her stuff on. We haven't got an awful lot, but it is really, really good. It's also really interesting for me, particularly, to read early pieces about acts that are now, you know, you'd have to say a really established big-name mm. act, like Joanna Newsom. An early interview with Joanna Newsom from 2004, and then a review of the Arcade Fire's first ever UK gig. At the, the following King's College year. Union. At King's College, in exactly. London. They're really great pieces, as is... 
the third of her pieces that we picked, which is just a really a lovely piece about being, you know, someone of a much younger generation who is introduced to the first four albums by Can, who we <laughs> talked about recently. Yeah. And it's just a, yeah. a, a really lovely poetic piece. I hadn't about read any of her writing. To Can. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it starts My memories aren't sepia tinted, they're midnight blue and smile white, fleet footed but with ash on my toes and holes in my tights where I kicked off my junk shop red suede boots in the corner. Long hair, long arms, long legs flickering. Yeah. It's just very, yeah. very yeah. beautiful yeah. prose. Yeah. A real discovery for me. I really hadn't read any of her pieces no, before, I mean, I, I, and I'm I, really I, looking I, forward to looking for some more, actually. Until we got those copies of Plan B, I'd never even come across the magazine, he has to confess, yeah. you know. Yeah, but exactly. It's good, it's good stuff. Exactly. And she writes of You Do Right, of course, from their first album, Monster Movie. Here's the Gnostic gospel of Malcolm Mooney, holding on by his fingertips to a groove that, six minutes in, threatens to become a tightly reined free fall, a groove that's smearing and seesawing, rough enough to send warm waves coursing up my spine, but sublimely sexless too, music for a woman to walk tall to. Ah. And I think that's a really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is something curiously... Androgynous, but not not sort of male. Not macho. I think that's absolutely right. Actually, that's really one of the great qualities of a bunch of the crowd rock bands. I say the same about Faust as well. Yeah, is that this is the opposite, the antithesis of cock rock. Yes, you know um, exactly. And because they were interested in textures and things like that, and Demo Suzuki as a singer is almost. It's quite feminine at times yeah. in, in, in his approach. Yes. So that's, that's really interesting, how yeah. you're saying that. that I that think was, so. That's good. Just briefly, the Newsome interview is wonderful. September 2004... You're a big Newsom fan, aren't you? I'm a huge Newsom fan. I understand that she's, you know, very Marmite. Interestingly for me, Frances goes into the reasons for that and she posits the idea that actually people can't handle the the emotional intimacy of Newsom's vocal style. And I think there's something in that. I think sometimes you can mishear what she does as being rather affected and precious and twee. I think if you really plunge into her records... I think they go way beyond that. It's quite consuming. It's quite... It's quite a commitment. Yeah. But I think she's written some very, very beautiful music and beautiful lyrics as well. She's got some really wonderful, very poetic kind of stories that she tells through music. She is a great, you know, writer of verse and just really interesting person too. She's 22 years old at this point and Frances writes that her debut album, which was called The Milk-Eyed Mender, slowly is surely becoming a classic... An unusual instrument she plays both distinctively and beautiful, i.e. the harp, and a voice that perplexes and beguiles in equal measure. It makes perfect sense that Joanna Newsom should have become a new kind of folk heroine. But she questions what it means to be cast in the role of naïf, of pixie, of child woman, which has become a bit of a cliché around performers like Newsom, I think. I and think she points, I think you're right. Yeah, or she says, you know, Newsom's story is also right. a story of hard work, scholarship, and an intensely thoughtful and intelligent young woman. I absolutely concur with that. Mm-hmm. Very skillful uh, musicians. Well, there are some wonderful videos of her singing and playing the harp yeah. on YouTube, and they're well worth just yeah. watching because they're just stunning. I mean, she's, she's, she's so virtuoso, talented and virtuosic yeah. Instrumentalist, well. isn't I, she? I have to confess, I've never really spent much time listening mm-hmm. to her. I really should do that because... A lot of people's opinions are respect outside of this room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think if you start... I mean, a way in for me, I think, would be the triple CD set that she put out, Have One On Me, which is really ambitious. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of closer to maybe 70s singer-songwriter kind of right. stylings, closer to sort of somebody like Judy Sill. Yeah. Whereas some of the other albums are... There's an album called... East, East, yeah. which has these extraordinary string arrangements mm. by Van Dyke Parks. Uh, I mean, I think it's brilliant, but I could understand people just not being able to get their heads around it. Well, at curiously, all. that may be the stuff I'd like more than Perhaps, There's something sometimes quite Kate Bush esque about some of her. Right, she's in that well. line, isn't she? I think, I think so. I think so. But I, I, I mean, I would possibly actually. You're saying you might want to start with East. I think it is more out there. I would say yeah. it's pretty out there. It's kind of chamber pop. 
The harp is very much in the foreground. Yeah, right. There isn't a lot of instrumentation apart from Van Dyke's string arrangements, which are quite incredible. Harp's an interesting instrument, because, I mean, it's something that... I've been immersing myself in Alice Coltrane in recent, recent yeah. years. And she's an exceptionally good, mm. good oh, harpist yeah. in a, obviously a very different context. They're very much like a melding of Indian and jazz things together. But the harp is really, really beautiful. And then, of course, Dorothy Ashby. Yes. Who I first became aware of when I was reading the sleeve notes to Bobby Wernick's Poet 2. Right. And when those songs open with a great swirl of harp, looking for a way to say Very goodbye and those point. sorts of songs. Yeah. You know? And suddenly realising that actually the harp is can be a really fabulous instrument in context other than kind of cheese or classical oh, music yeah. or whatever, you know. I agree. I mean, Dorothy Ashby is really interesting. She made, a, quite a, she made a few records herself. She also earned a living playing harp in hotels, you know. Because <laughs> what that, generation was Dorothy she, oh, well, she died, was she sort of older than Bobby? I mean, died, was she a, couple, uh, a generation older, maybe? Probably around maybe the same. Maybe around the same age. She also kind of did a lot of session work as a black session player in Los Angeles. Sure. There weren't many black no. session players in Los Angeles no. in the 60s and 70s. But, no, she's exceptional. And as I say, Alice Coltrane is someone who I absolutely come to adore. Bits of, you know, bits of Alice Coltrane, I think, are just fabulous. I have this pet theory that the kinds of eccentric, shall we say, female artists, that kind of, it's a line that maybe runs from sort of Laura Nero through, not really, Joni obviously is much more accepted by a broader range of people, but Ricky Lee Jones, Kate Bush, Björk, Joanna Newsom. I mean, I sort of think that a lot of men have real difficulty with that music because it's so different from sort of meat and potatoes, yes. male rock. And they're kind of offended by the sort of the eccentricity, the risks that the these voice, artists the, the take. Stride the voice, voice. Yeah. Well, you see, I mean, I don't mean, stride, I don't mean literally no. the vocal, I mean the artistic voice. Exactly. But, but I think men hear it as slightly, sometimes a bit, what, hysterical. There's a very misogynistic attitude to those I kinds of right. performers. And I think it has a lot to do with, actually, they just feel uncomfortable at how, in a sense, uninhibited yes. the singing is, you know. And, I think and, naked, just... and nakedly feminine as well. And nakedly you, feminine, you know, so, exactly. So, so, yeah. That's just very interesting. Be a woman, be a woman, the spring of the winds we decide that the state of the time won't Anyway, so th three pieces by Frances Morgan. Hoping to add a lot more. Hoping perhaps we'll get her in for the podcast one day. That'd be great. She, she was briefly the deputy editor of The Wire, right. which we all revere, of course. We do. So, Mark, you're going to tell us a little bit about the audio interview. Yes, well, actually, I'm going to throw it straight back at you. It's Steve Rosa interviewing Buzzy Linhart, who died last week, week before last week. Yeah, about 10, 12 days right. ago. Right, in July 2008. But... Barney, tell us who Buzzy Linhart was. Well, I, I, you know, I have to confess, I'm no expert on Buzzy Linhart. I mean, he's a pretty obscure figure who we might not even be talking about if his name wasn't Buzzy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, having a kind of eccentric name gives you a little, a little more I mean, posterity. He, I mean, he, I, he was sort of out of that white blues American tradition uh, in which you keep about Jeff Mulder and so on. Exactly. He was a sort of Greenwich Village guy yes. who played around the village and we'll be talking about the Café at Go-Go yes, in a minute. Absolutely. And he sort of pops up here, there yeah. and everywhere. Not quite a zealot, but it could have been yes. a zealot. You know, so he has a song on Carly Simon's first album. Yeah. He co-wrote... Bette Midler's, one of Bette Midler's signature songs, Friends, yes. with Moogie Klingman, who later played with Todd Rundgren in Utopia. Right. I mean, this is, it's very New York. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he was a guitar player, he was a vibraphonist, um, and he was a sort of fixture, but he faded away. Well, he, he really a, did fade away. because he was a mediocrity. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I'll leave... I, I'm glad you said it, so I didn't you know, have to. I never liked slagging yeah, people off. Yeah, yesterday we played 
what Luton have. The two, the two or three albums yeah. on Spotify. And I don't think any of us really the, were grabbed by them, to be they're, honest. They're terrible. They were terrible. Of course, Spider Spider. They were pretty shit. He's gone now. We can't hurt his feelings. But this interview is pretty interesting because, as you say, he was a scenester in Greenwich Village. And... He firstly talks about how his version of he did Dina Valente's Get Together, which the previous the Kingston Trio recorded in '64, but otherwise everyone had forgotten about. Then he was doing a gig at the Cafe Ogogo yep. with the Young Bloods, right? And he basically get, kind of he gave it to the Young Bloods, right. who then had a huge hit, huge with, hit it. with it. Yes, uh, and he's slightly resentful. You know, it's kind of like that should have been mine. Right. And this is that's the tone. That's throughout, the sort of story of his life. That, in that's, a way. That, and should the tone, have been me. Yeah. The tone throughout this interview. Yeah. He's quite amusingly cantankerous. Oh, yeah. And he's also on, he's a bit of a flake. I mean, this is a man who's probably spent most of his life drugging and drinking and his brain is not in the best nick. I suspect um, as much. He tells highly unreliable stories about the owner of Howard Solomon of the Cafe Gogo about he claims that Howard Solomon set up Lenny Bruce's bust when other people say, in fact, Solomon was... Well, when you have selected a clip from uh, that, I, I, Well, let's listen to that now. horrible things that Howard ever did, aside from warning the bands at the beginning of the week that if they got caught smoking marijuana in the dressing room that he there would be a $50 fine, then he would walk into the dressing room while you're warming up and say, hey guys, you got any pot? Come on, I know you got a little pot, let's smoke, come on, let's do it. And then you'd smoke with him, he'd get high, and at the end of the week he would give you a, a $50 <laughs> fine for every night that you smoked a joint with him. The worst thing he ever did, he called the police. He, he went out to the corner phone and he called the police. And, and he's the reason Lenny Bruce got busted at the Cafe Ogogo. He wanted the publicity. He wanted the front page of the newspaper. He was just rotten. Howard Solomon went out to the phone on the corner of uh, Bleecker Street and Thompson and put a dime in, which was what it cost then, of course, and called the police, claimed he was an elderly person who had been out to have a wonderful evening with his elderly wife, and they were just aghast to find this man coming up on, on, the, on the stage and, and saying all these pornographic things. And the police came right over and busted Lenny Bruce. And the Cafe Gogo was packed every day for the rest of the city. Just... A horrible, horrible, horrible fucking guy. I love the idea of going out for a pleasant evening with your elderly wife and choosing to go and see Lenny Bruce. At the cafe. At the cafe. cafe. <laughs> um, Let's go see Lenny. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, why this interview's worth listening to is there's a lot of really good stories in it. You know, He talks about this guy, Jimmy James, playing around the corner at the cafe while, of course, Jimmy Hendrix. He had a band called The Seventh Sons and... Their drummer, Serge Katzen, was apparently useless. And he blames this useless drummer, who he felt unable to fire, for the reason why the band were unsuccessful. There's a lot of that sort of stuff. Why did he feel unable to fire? Just just bullshit, you know, frankly. Um, (laughs) He was was coached by Steve Paul for the scene. He jammed with Jimi Hendrix. He went to England. He's on a Jimi Hendrix record, isn't he? He, he, So he claims on this, you know. He's he's actually on Electric Lady. I'm not quite sure what he's doing. I think he's playing vibes. I think he is playing vibes. Which is, you know, that's a qualification. It's a claim, sort of. You know, I wouldn't I mean, mind to be on If you'd been on it, we'd never hear the end of it. We would never, ever hear the end of it. Never hear the end of it. And this week, uh, we'll be talking uh, about <laughs> when I played on an acting <laughs> lady. Yeah. Um, he goes to England as part of a tour where it turns out no one's got work permits and he finds himself stranded. And he'd been pursued by Lou Reisner for the Mercury label. And he says Lou Reisner's a gangster. I mean, it's just, this is the tone of this interview. Everyone's just shitting a gangster. Lou Rice is a gangster. And he said no to him over and over again. Then he's stuck in England. And because he needs bailing out, he calls up Lou Reisner and signs Mercury. Then, of course, that record stiffs. And he blames it on everyone but himself. You know, it's, that's, that's the nature of this, this interview. You know, and he's, 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 the stories are great, but, you know, it's not someone you want to hang out with particularly. <laughs> Said. Yeah, I mean, you know, you asked at the beginning to tell us about Buzzy Lindley. It's just he's one of those names yeah. that you kind of, you know, that I'd you... never heard before in my entire life until no. probably Tuesday this week. And I know you were delighted to hear it when you did <laughs> finally hear it. 
Jasper. I think you said something like, oh, great. Buzzy Linhart. Is he another of those useless old white folky singer-songwriter types? To which I can only say, well, broadly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but, you know, we listened to the stuff yesterday. And it, it isn't great. It's I'm afraid really cool. it is. It's, it's, no, it's, sorry, worse, it's worse than that. It's sorry, worse sorry. than not great. <laughs> sorry, Buzzy fans. Yeah. So Zero out of three for Buzzy on this week's podcast. Uh, he, tell, he, Buzzy. He, he tells an amusing story, which we'll play at the end of the the podcast where he does the foolish thing of buying Sun House a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> and, and then everyone says to him afterwards, "You never buy Sun House whiskey." Because... Did you buy Mister House some whiskey? Mister House, Mister House, with hilarious results. Yes. So that, that's that, that's that's basically... to look forward to. Stick around for that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you we, want to march through some of your highlights? Yeah, I don't actually kind of. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff this week, but not many things that I found compelling <laughs> to, to describe. in this, this, this is really interesting. April '66, Melody Maker, Chris Welch, profiling, but also talking to Neil Innes of the then Bonzo Dog Doodah band. I think this may well be the very first art school on the Bonzo Dog Doodah band oh, really? anywhere. Wow. They're still at art school. The band is still at art school. Yeah. I have a, one of my ex-brother-in-laws, through a couple of them, <laughs> one of them actually played trombone for the Bonzo Dog Doodah band when he was at Royal College of Art. Really? Yeah. They were... I mean, I'll read his bit. He says, We're not doing a temperance seven. We're murdering a temperance seven, insisted the mm. defiant member of Britain's most incredible new rhythm ensemble, <laughs> the wonderful Bonzo Dog Doodah band this week. Fans of this nine-piece art student orchestra, dedicated to recreating what they call cornology, know from their own exposure to the sounds of Bonzo, they bear little or no resemblance to the old temps. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Temperance Seven were really cheesy sort of twenties, mock twenties, pastiche. pastiche. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the Bonzo Dog Band were a quite different creature altogether. But this is, as I said, this is, you know, spring of 66, so I think this is quite possibly the very first written about him. And, of course, Neil Innes, who died a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we haven't really had an opportunity to pay tribute yeah. to Neil Innes. Actually, he died about a month, five weeks ago now. We're, we're late, and we should have... I, I think something happened, like I got burgled or something, we weren't able to talk about right. Neil Innes, and we... The rattles and all of that. Yeah. I mean, a, a a really comedically, a towering yeah, figure. Yeah, absolutely. Really. Uh, heavily involved in Monty Python flying circus yeah. in various ways. Well, it was great to have this early yeah. piece, Mark. Really oh, I was, I was really pleased to do yeah. that. Moving forward, almost a decade, Paul McCartney being interviewed by Paul Gambaccini for Sounds. It's actually, it was for a radio broadcast, but he just transcribed it and wrote it up for Sounds. I'd have done uh, the same. This is obviously the Wings period. And it's <laughs> Proto Brexiteer Paul McCartney. <laughs> one of the worst faults. One of the worst things almost about the common market is that miles are going to become kilometres. He later <laughs> so on terrible. says, "Whoever's going to change kilometres to miles is going to be reading a book in ten years and say, ah, miles. They were good, weren't they? It was a nice word, wasn't it?" Then later <laughs> on he says, "The millimetre isn't even that clever a measurement. I understand it's more modern and it's easier being in tens, but I know it's not for me." The millimetre is not for Maca. That's just sublime. <laughs> what a ridiculous thing. I mean, it, 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 we, we also haven't moved on from miles yet, so... Well, I, I'm quite, you know. Exactly. You know, this, Did McCartney come out the of the British public. Do we I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I kept his I, head down. I, if, yeah, it's probably because he knew someone digged out this article. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> gotcha, Maca. But if this ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give in and cry. Say live and let die. A year later, Brexit handed. Um, Maureen Patton, or Peyton, for the Melody Maker, November 76, reviewing Johnny Guitar Watson at the Hammersmith Odeon. Now, we've got on the site two other reviews of that tour, but from Newcastle University. One by our friend Cliff White and the other by Vivian Goldman. Vivian was big on Johnny Guitar They Watson. both rave about these shows, mm. even though the show they saw was ragged. It was early in the tour and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. 
Maureen Payton really doesn't like it at all. And the thing is, there were two Johnny Guitar Watsons. There's Johnny Guitar Watson, 50s, early 60s, jump blues artist. And then there was 70s Johnny Guitar Watson, Funketeer. And she obviously was really loved the old blues stuff. Okay. And so she says, the audience likewise seemed unsatisfactorily split down the middle between those relentless party partying in the aisles to I Need It, sung three times, and those who had come for guitar chainsaw massacres and got only two golden oldies from his virtuoso days. A sorry tale. So Ain't that a bitch? Ain't that a bitch. Well, <laughs> you see, it's funny you should say that, because if you read both of Cliff White's and Vivian's, the end, the very last line is, ain't that a bitch. bitch. <laughs> I love that track. I, I mean, I love both. Yeah. I, I, I really love his, as a, as a blues artist. He was so funny and so witty and interesting. But I just love the funk too. Yeah. But Maureen, she just was not dealing he's with He's one of the great characters oh, of black American music, isn't he? Absolutely magnificent. I mean, he's also had a... Has anyone ever written a book about him? No, but, you'd think... I, I think Vivian was going to. Because there's a really a whole interesting set of stories around mm. him. Who is it? He, he became a part of Larry Williams's. During the drug dealing days in, in, oh, in Los yeah. Angeles, those are not pretty tales. Not pretty tales, but they're really riveting tales. Yeah, you know? I mean, they were talking, you know, a lot of cocaine yeah. and guns. But 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 also, he was a pal of Frank Zappa's, all kinds of stuff. And at the very end, I mean, when I was working with Glass Gallery at the Toronto Album Museum, the head of the ceramics at Glass at the V&A had Johnny Guitar Watson playing piano around at his house a couple of times. Sorry? Sorry, yeah. can, can you just say <laughs> that again? Head of ceramics? Yeah, Oliver Watson. At, at the Victorian Albert at, Museum yeah, yeah, in South yes, Kensington. Yeah. Had Johnny Guitar so, Watson playing yeah. piano as his part. Well, see, Oliver Watson... <laughs> I've heard it all. Oliver Watson is Ben Watson of The Wire's brother, and Ben Watson is fanatical about Johnny Guitar okay. Watson as well. Okay, so that something to do with it. But, but he's had a fascinating life as an R&B yeah. musician, without ever having really massive stellar hits, but always... You know, keeping his head mm. above water. And when you pay your rent and your car note, you ain't got a damn thing left. Ain't that a bitch? <laughs> yes, it is. Somebody doing something slick. Sounds 1979. Pete Silverton spends a day, I think it's in Scotland, with John Cooper Clark. Oh, and John Cooper Clark is, he always gives great interviews for yeah. start. And a lot of this interview is about his Catholicism. And he says, I'm a socialist Catholic, if you know what I mean. At the moment, I'm trying to reconcile Catholicism with international socialism. (laughs) That's how I've always thought of John Cooper. Well, he says, you know, my dad was the big problem, you know. He he sent us to a Catholic school, but he was a professed atheist. So, you know... Interesting. That's there. That's That's, that's there. It's a really, really good interview. Pete Silverton, uh, we have a lot of time for. We certainly Um, do. uh, And And JCC, too. I knew him very briefly a little bit in the the 80s. And he was such such a nice guy and so funny. I really, really liked him. Yeah. And I think I have... Probably mentioned this on a podcast before, so so just shoot me down, I'll cut it out. But I did have this experience with him where he, I went back to his flat in Brixton and, and emerging like a ghost from the kitchen was Nico. That's right. It was his kind of flatmate, and they were they were touring a lot, doing gigs together, yeah, yeah, with John yeah. Cooper Clark and Nico, and I Amazing. think they did some work together. Yeah. But really cool. he get, was lovely. Did, 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 did you ever get into the drug side of things? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. He had a serious drug problem right. back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, was, if you're sharing a flat with Nico, you had no choice but to have a serious drug problem. Really. Yeah, but it's not, it's not a great way to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to 1987. This is John Aislewood for number one. And the, the title of the section, which is the regular section, is Pop Stars and the Strange Things They Own. And this is Sly and Robbie, <laughs> the marvellous red rhythm section. <laughs> He says, John is right, they're sitting in an unpleasant office in their rock company telling me their secret. It's this, explains Sly, pulling out a calculator. Uh, right, a calculator. Uh, no, it's a Cyan XB, and it's a personal pocket computer, or a Filofax computer, if we're going to be yuppie about it. We bought ours from a shop in Tottenham Court Road last year for £139. Our keyboardist in Jamaica had one, and he said, man, that's for us, it's changed our lives. I always love reading things about... Old technology yeah. when it's new. Neil Tennant mentioned the science in he? that 1996 <laughs> audio that we had last yeah, week. He yeah. talks about well, his cyan organisation. Well, well, this has been in, this is 87, so it's, it's, it's a pre-organised yeah. organisation. 139 pounds in 87. A lot of money, quite a chunk yeah. for a pocket I, I, device. I, I just love 
articles about dead technology where mm. people are extolling it. It's like As the future. It the, yes, the, <laughs> the brave new future. Yes, yes. And this is, this is it. It's so a quaint now. Yeah, yeah, I know. Mm. 1999, this is really interesting. So there's a series of interviews by Fred Schroes with fathers and sons in mm. music. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and this one is with the Wainwrights, Loudon and... The Wainwrights. <laughs> At home with the Wainwrights. <laughs> Wainwright. <laughs> Loudon and Rufus. Now, I think we all know that Rufus's relationship with his father was very complicated and quite distant. He's and Martha's too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, on the one hand, kind of Rufus is quite generous. So I'm only starting to understand a lot of his life right now. For the longest time, I resented my father and hated him. But now that I'm in the same business and I'm touring and doing the same things he's doing, I can readily understand why he acted the way he did, why he wasn't around so much, his whole life out there. Which is meat and potatoes, straightforward stuff. Loudon, on the other hand, if it's your own kid becoming famous, it's difficult. You're jealous of youth and certainly, in his case, talent. At the same time, you find yourself sending his record to people and bragging about him. I felt very uncomfortable with having a hit with Dead Skunk. I don't think Rufus is going to have that problem. I've seen him. He's very happy in limousines. He's totally at home leaning on those plush leather seats. <laughs> and something ever so slightly catty about that, isn't it? I love the honesty of the way, right? <laughs> I have to say. I mean, you know, Rufus was a pretty fucked up little kid and, and yeah, yeah. he'd go on to have addiction problems, uh, as as many children of entertainers do. Yeah. But actually, I think they've kind of... It's, there's been a hard-fought piece yeah. in the Wainwright <laughs> plan. And my great memories of seeing... When I interviewed Rufus in New York in about 2001, I saw him play a show and he introduced... There's a famous Loudon song called Rufus is a Tip. Yeah. <laughs> which is brilliantly all about dad's jealousy that, that little Rufus gets to suck on mum's tit. Yeah, yeah, right. basically. And, he, and so Rufus decided <laughs> to, to, to do a cover of this live. And he introduced it by saying in his wonderfully camp voice... Rufus a tip, man? Hmm. Maybe not, Dad. Think a little lower. <laughs> <laughs> it always stayed in my mind. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's a really, it's an interesting interview. Um, you know, it was the two of them obviously interviewed separately, but I suspect of that whole section of Rolling Stone interviews I'm going to be putting to the library over the next few months. What other um, combos there, are there? There's the, the Cuda, father and son. Cuda? Yeah, Ry Cuda and his Oh, Ry Cuda, yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. There's the Marley's, even though Bob is not interviewed because right. he's dead. dead. Yeah, it's <laughs> difficult, that one. Uh, I, I can't remember offhand. There are, there are a bunch okay. of them. But I suspect, this, but I suspect this is going to be proved to be the most interesting of the, of the last. It's actually you know? a really great idea, yeah. I think, because I think it, it, I suspect it really is. There quite are lots difficult. of dynamics to yeah. be explored and worked through. For yeah, yeah. but also the kind of yeah, the, the whole slaying yes. of the father, Freud, Freud's whole yeah. line on you have to kill the yeah. father. You also, know? this is the first generation <laughs> of musicians who are second generation, yeah. effectively. Yeah. This is a quite recent phenomenon. I mean, an early example was Marty Wilde's daughter, Kim Wilde. was a very early example of this. But, you know, when you think about it, the musicians of the 60s, their children in the late 80s, yep. 90s, would be coming through, yep. some of them choosing to follow their parents, yep. their fathers or mothers, into whatever it is that they did. I mean, Rufus Wainwright's interesting because, you know, the female side of the family was interesting in a sustained way over many years. I mean, his sister, I think, has made some really interesting records. Sure. Uh, the, the McGarrigals, that's mother that's and aunt, fabulous. is just one of... Just a, just the gorgeous Yeah, just record. the coming together of those two families yeah. I think is so interesting yeah. in itself, you know. And, you know, imagine being brought up in a household where singing and song was absolutely central to what everyone did. Mm -hmm. Must have been, you know, really quite something. I mean, normally the sons and, and for that matter, daughters of really talented musicians mm -hmm. tend not to be as good. That's you not know, like Stephen Stills' son or the Marley's boys. or you Bob know, Dylan's. Dylan. I mean, you, they're so overshadowed by yeah. the achievements of their parents. But I think in this case, I actually think Rufus is a, a more special talent than, than Loudon. I like Loudon's record. I think he's very funny. No, I agree with and, you. But I think Rufus, musically, yeah. it's, it's such it's so much richer and the, the canvas is so much And Loudon knew it. And, and as, I as think he Loudon kind of knew it. As he says Does that. he say in this... I don't know if I read it in that piece where he, he actually... He, he's quite honest about being disappointed that he's not going to get necessarily get a grand, yes, grandchildren yes, from yes, Rufus. Yes, that not that it follows, because actually, as it turns out, Rufus and his husband do have yeah. 
children. And, do, and do, his sister had children as well? I don't know if Martha's right. got kids. And they have a very funny relationship well, as well. Indeed, There's indeed. a wonderful... We mentioned Van Dyke Parks earlier. One of Rufus's great tracks is called... I think it's called... It's not can't be called Little Sister because that, but it's got sister in the mm-hmm. title. Little sister, come and sit beside me, beside me, and we'll play a tune on this old piano. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant song about sibling rivalry. Right. About yeah, Martha's yeah. yeah, I was going to say, it's another, another probably article series to be written about siblings in the music industry. Well, exactly. indeed. And there are lots and lots of... And they all hate each other. Well, families pretty, are just so fascinating, pretty, aren't they? But, I mean, the, the number of brothers who have formed bands and it's all ended really badly. We could probably name 30 <laughs> pairs of brothers... We could. ...who have come to virtually kill each other. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking last... Was it last week about brothers who actually stayed together for a long time and it's fine? And thinking they're the exception, you know, the, the rule is... Who were they? Can I can't remember. remember. I know, but we were, and you're yeah. right. And they, they, there probably is only one exception yeah. to the But rule. then you think about the kinks. I mean... Yeah. Oh, just you know, the, 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 it's just the Gallagher's... Um, uh, who else? Uh, we <laughs> this is when the salt riff I know, I know, I know. at least 30. <laughs> One, two, three, 30. <laughs> Thanks, Jasper. <laughs> just just underscoring the incipient <laughs> senility at work yeah. here. Um, but but there, there are lots. No, no, there are for sure. Um, uh, it is, oh, write uh, to us. Just write to us. Phone in. <laughs> yes. Um, but but um, it, is, it is an interesting phenomenon. And... and, and I've got another pair. The Go Robinsons, on. Black Crows. All oh, right. Yeah. Do Chris, they, do they Chris Robinson and Rich Robinson, real feud for a long time. So they, I've managed one more. I've got me really. Neville's did all right, though, didn't they? Neville's, well, well, I mean, I think know. even I well, think they're even yeah. so much. I think it's probably okay if there are more than two brothers. I see. Yes, that's see, interesting. The Everleys, but also I mean, the Everleys. Oh, they, 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 the Everleys. For years, would tour and they'd be staying in separate hotels, take separate flights, have nothing to do with each other off stage, yeah. and get together on stage, look into each other's eyes and yes. sing sweet harmonies, yeah. and then they'd march off again. I've come up with the perfect example. Yes! Bross! 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 Yep. Thank you. Hurrah. Well, that's pretty good. That was staring perfect. in plain sight, isn't it? <laughs> it's partly because they're called Bross. Exactly. There you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But, um, no, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one. What have... Jasper or Barney, which, what have you got? Oh, for? you remember our name. Yes, <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I will mention just two or three things, and then Jasper will probably go into more detail. No, uh, just two as well for okay, me. Okay, two for you, right. So I just want, I'm not going to talk at length, but Paul Luster wrote a lovely piece about the associates in Record Collector in 2007 that we're including. And I love Paul's taste. We're, we're, we see eye to eye on many things. We both love the associates. And it's just a very... You know, this is the sad story of the great Billy McKenzie, who yeah. he starts off by saying the, the greatest pop singer of the 80s, British pop singer of the 80s. I think I might almost go along with that. Really underrated. People have forgotten how great the associates were. He talks at some length to Alan Rankin, who was the other associate. Yeah about Billy and Billy's Billy's extraordinary, you know, sexual confusion could never just just basically someone said he would just shag he'd shag the hair on a barber's floor. <laughs> so he was what a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. But then you know some years later he he killed himself yeah. and and you know it was just really heartbreaking. The other the other piece I really actually enjoyed was the story of Wheatus's Teenage Dirt Bag. Oh, man. Which is just one of the immortal pop songs of the last sort of 15 oh, years. It's sort of dreadful, but rather wonderful yeah, yeah, too, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty dire. What's interesting is, and I can't hilarious. remember the names of the, the two people, it's this Henry Yates, who writes quite a lot also for classic rock and other magazines, but he just, he interviewed the main songwriter and the guy that helped to write it and produce it. And actually, they're really articulate about what the song is about. And it's it's an interesting little story. It's that whole idea of, you know, if you are an adolescent growing up in, like, Long Island, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the early, early noughties, and everybody's telling you you're a piece of shit, well, you become a piece of shit. Mm, yeah. And that's yeah. what it's really about. And, and I think I that, that. that's... That a lot of adolescents could could attest to that. Mm-hmm. If you call me a dirtbag, I'll show you dirtbag. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it made me 
Think about that song in a slightly different way. What are your offerings? First of all, Flying Lotus at Colston Hall in Bristol. Flying Lotus is a producer of really quite intense and out there electronic music right. who I really rate I think he's fantastic he also has a label called Brain Feeder Thundercat is on that label mm-hmm. right so kind of that intersection of jazz and electronic music yeah. he's sort of at the forefront of that in yeah. a lot of ways and in fact I think he's Alice Coltrane earlier mentioned I think he's Alice Coltrane's nephew I think he is, is that right? that's absolutely correct and this is very interesting because when I was on New Year's Day talking to Sean O'Hagan from the High Llamas and he's become really interested in this this specific area. He said for years, he's about he's a bit younger than me, probably around your sort of age, I'd guess. But you know, for a long time, like a lot of our generation, yes, like a lot of our generation, he just re- was rejecting all new music he heard as being just a revamp of the old stuff. And suddenly, he started discovering these people. Like Alice Coltrane, you mean? No, no. Oh, Flying Lotus and that Exactly. Finding this new generation. And also a lot in London where there's... There's a fantastic London jazz scene that I've sort of waxed. Yeah. Well, we'll get Sean into... Yeah, but Flying Lotus is great. And Stephen Dalton goes to see him perform. And, I mean, other brain feeder actor on the bill as well. Thundercats there. And... Stephen Dalton concludes saying, Immersive, inventive and ablaze with audiovisual bling, this dazzling experiment in sensory overload had one foot in underground club culture and another in Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. And I think it is really interesting the way that he just blends all these disparate sort of influences and ideas into this really vivid kind of intense, as I said. Out of interest, what component does rhythm have? as part of this. A big component. Yeah. A very but big what component. What sort of... Not all his pieces are rhythmic. But there, there's, there's quite a lot of... Ambient yeah, there, there are more ambient on. sort of things yeah. as well, but there's quite a lot of skittering rhythms. Right. Quite frenetic, mm-hmm. quite fast. And so there's a lot of, like, out of drum and bass, bass yeah, to some degree. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, there's a lot of sampling that he will do mm-hmm. of, of certain things and sounds and synthesis as well. Mm-hmm. It's quite mixed, actually. He has done a lot of different stuff. I mean... The album that really captivated me was called You're Dead. And it's really short. It's like 33 minutes long or something. And it's kind of magnificent in its blazing trajectory. Oh, I love just, the sound of the 33-minute mm, album because one that, of the problems we all have with music is long. that people make records that are fast is a good length yeah. for a long player. That's Flylo, as he's known Flylo. to <laughs> as, as he's known to Rufus Wainwright. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> and uh, a slight, slight jump. And then the year after, 2015, an interview with One Direction's Harry Styles and Niall Horan. Oh, fabulous! <laughs> Tell us about this, Jasper. So I this is Pip Williams right interviewing Harry and Niall as part of a sort of round-table interview, which is kind of an interesting format. Lots of, I think, different publications, but the other publications are only identified by their countries, which is kind of strange. So you've got, mm. like, Belgium asking questions and or Bulgaria Sweden asking, asking questions. A question. <laughs> and so I've actually... The, the quote that I've picked Eurovision is... Song the quote that I've is actually Sweden asking a question. This is, this is actually... Pip is writing for Kudama in New Zealand. And this is Sweden asking... You're about to have your last concert before the break. How do you feel about that? So One Direction, a big announcement. One Direction are taking a break. And Niall goes on. It's obviously going to be emotional because we've toured every year for the last five years. Doing shows our favourite thing. Blah, 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 blah. And then Sweden follows up with, do you think you'll cry? (laughs) (laughs) Niall goes, can't tell until we're there, I suppose. (laughs) Harry Styles... Things like that is usually things that sink in afterwards. I think we're going to enjoy the last show. They're quite sweet. I, I mean, yeah. One Direction get sort of mercilessly slagged off at all times because of all sort of, hugely you know, successful boy bands. Absolutely, do for the most part. and Harry Styles has actually been reasonably successful with his solo career, unlike mm. a lot of yeah. boy bandiers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really. I mean, I've heard actually 
reasonable things about his latest record being sort of a pretty decent pop record. I haven't spent enough time listening to it to be sure. able to judge that. Have you spent not, any time listening to it? I tried to listen to it on the tube this morning and I sort of zoned out and forgot that I was listening to it. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about well, it. Actually, that, that process of what happens to people when they leave boy bands is, it can be quite interesting. And, of course, take, take that, that story, is, is, Robbie. Mm. Yes, I mean, mm. where Barlow was the one everyone assumed was going to have the solo yeah. hit... And he went about it by being by, by being as <laughs> yellow card. He went about it by being as conservative as he could, you know, trying to turn himself into some middle aged singer songwriter sort of thing. Mm. A bit of Elton, a bit of Paul McCartney yeah. in there. Well, Robbie Williams, who no one was expecting to do jack shit, who after he had left the band was then seen at Glastonbury getting smashed with Oasis mm. and sort of coming I saw him wasted backstage at Earl's Court with yeah. Oasis. Yeah. And he was fat and pudgy and yeah. drunk. And I remember thinking, you're already a has That's right. And then, lo and behold, lo and behold, he has, he's the one who has the massive hit. Oh, yeah. You know? And actually, sustained for a few years a really monumental career. It seems to rather peter out now. I think, yeah. I think I, he's, I, he's, he's run his He, he mostly he seems to spend his time on the roof of his house pretending to be Robert Plant to irritate <laughs> Jimmy Page who lives next door. <laughs> that is a full time career. That is a full time <laughs> career. <laughs> and but a he doesn't get paid one, quite as much. <laughs> As he did for, for selling yes. out Nebworth. But I mean, that was a that was an, was an interesting story, regardless of yeah. what you think about the any of the artists concerned. Yeah, there's there's this, this good dynamic going so, on. So take that, that's that. Take that, Jasper. Is that it? We're take one direction. <laughs> uh, I think I think that's it. Just to say, we will be back next week with. The great Michael Watts, oh, the man to whom David Bowie had confessed to being gay, even though he wasn't gay, <laughs> in 1972. And who has written much else besides and doesn't want to be known just for doesn't that. Doesn't want to be known just for that. No, Michael Watts is one of the great Absolutely. music writers. Absolutely. Fantastic writer. I mean, we'll be, we'll really great writer. Stolen his Laura Nero piece last week. We were. He's very funny, uh, you know, uh, quite uh, acerbic, uh, uh, and uh, had, to be, had to be really cajoled into he doing He still emerged, podcast. what, 72, 73 at Melody Maker? I think he might have been there even earlier than yeah, that. He was but, part of that intake, Richard Williams and so forth, people who came off provincial newspapers yes. who actually yeah. had learned how to be journalists. Yes, and to do shorthand. And, and like Melody Maker had five or six of them. Yeah. And good. Well, great. Well, we will talk in depth about that. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. Um, that wraps it up. We'll be here next week, hopefully back in the main Rockstack Pages cupboard. Yeah, Studio with, One. With, <laughs> <laughs> with Michael Watts. Thanks for joining us today. Thank See you very you much for listening. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. But you got to have friends. And nobody told me anything about anything, but when somehow said to me, Mark, I want you to get me some whiskey. I didn't know that you couldn't get whiskey for Sunhouse, but I knew 10 minutes later. And uh, I went in and got him just, it was just a, a two pint or something. And, uh, but 10 Ten minutes later, he was going, I'm Sunhouse, king of the blue. I'm Sunhouse, the king of the blue. He didn't even put an S on there. And when we got to the lot, Baby James, which was the name of Skip James's wife, Baby, <clears throat> said to me, you didn't give Mr. House any whiskey. <laughs> Son did his entire set. Three times in the dressing room. That was Buzzy Linhart in conversation with Steve Roser in 2008, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Um, also, it's Harley Cunt. Harley Cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to leave that in the podcast? Harley Cunt? Yeah. I think this is... Harley Cunt. Harley Cunt. Go and fuck off. That's got to say it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer. Send money to your loved ones back home the fast, easy, and reliable way. Visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started. And your first transfer fee is free. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985, FX Gain Supply. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 